Well, we're continuing in our sermon series in the book of Zechariah. And I, I just want to begin by bringing you up to date on the historical setting. The historical setting and the context are two different things. Uh, a lot of times they get confused, but the historical setting is that it's now 518 B.C. Approximately two years have passed since those night visions that we've been looking at. See, sometimes we lose touch of time frames when we're studying the scriptures because we don't realize that from one verse to the next, we can all of a sudden jump two years uh, or 13 years in the book of Acts at times. Uh, and uh, it's been two years since that night in which Zechariah had those eight visions. And the temple was steadily rising before the people's eyes because the obstacles for the completion of the building were removed by the decree of Darius, which actually confirmed the original decree of Cyrus. Darius had ordered a search because some people came saying, why those Jews are down there building a temple and they're just going to pull away and separate from you. And so Darius had a search. And sure enough, in the annals and the records, they found the decree of Cyrus that was not to be reversed, that the Jews were to be allowed to return uh, to the promised land. They were, in fact, to be given funds and aid in the rebuilding of the temple. And you can read all about that in Ezra chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. But the nation's situation looked promising. Uh, In fact, this is verse 7 of Ezra. Where, where Darius says, let the work on this house of God alone. Quit bothering them. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. This isn't a Jew, a follower of God. This is an a emperor of another nation who God has worked His providence out so that Money and help and materials were there to rebuild the house. And although the walls of Jerusalem were still in ruins and parts of the town were in desolation, the city and the surrounding countryside were beginning to take shape again. Now the context is that we are now at the 7th and the 8th chapters of Zechariah and this is the third division of the prophecy. And they're actually a, a, a kind of an interlude in the story. In the first per- portion of the prophecy, we started out that very first Sunday with just chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. And we heard the call from Zechariah in response to the word of the Lord for a national repentance, a turning to the Lord. So that once again, those blessings of the covenant, those promised blessings, could once again return. And after a national turning to God, three months later, by the way, Zechariah was granted, or one might think cursed, with these eight visions that all came in one night. A night with no sleep. Visions that took him, as we saw, from the time in which he ministered to the coronation as king over all of his world, Jesus, the king of kings, sitting at the right hand of God. Now, it's the fourth year 
of King Darius. In fact, we're told it's the ninth day of the fourth month, which we can date within one day's accuracy. Probably December the 7th, 518 B.C. And as we move into our text, a delegation has arrived from Bethel, a little town just 12 miles north of Jerusalem, to pose a very interesting question. So let's look at the text. An initiating question. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying, To the priests of the house of the Lord, of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? You see, they came with a question. One which actually initiated more than they probably wanted to hear. When I was training to be a teacher, one of the things that they said to us was, don't ask a question unless you're prepared for the answer you might receive. Because especially with young kids, they're going to take that question literally and they're going to say the first thing that pops to their mind. So you've got to make sure that you frame that question in a way that there's only going to be the answer you want to hear. Or that you might have at least predicted. So these men come with a question that initiates a really interesting interchange. Excuse me. The delegation from Bethel was headed by two men with interesting names. Sherezer and Regimelic. Babylonian names. Only natural. Where had their families been for 70 years? In exile in Babylon. In fact, even remember that story of those devout young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel? How they were even given or attempted to be given Babylonian names. And their names, the first name, Sherezer, means protect the king. The second name means friend of the king. And their purpose, their purpose, it says, was to entreat God. Actually, that word entreat means to entreat the favor of God, to to appease. In the post-exilic community, that community that had come back after the exile, this expression meant to worship in the temple. An example of that is found in Malachi chapter 1 verse 9 where it says, And now entreat the favor of God that He may be gracious to us. In fact, we're told that before asking their question, which was troubling for them, the delegation in fact engaged in temple worship. Now the question was, arrest, uh, was addressed to the priests and to the prophets. Again, in that community that had returned from the exile, uh, the hostility which 
often characterized the relationship between the priests and the prophets before the exile, that seems to have disappeared. The priests were those who were experts in the law and in the religious rituals. But they realized they needed to hear the word of God that was coming from these prophets. And to hear that direct revelation to guide the community in areas where the law really didn't speak. And the question that was posed to the religious leaders was framed in the first person singular. Shall I weep in the fifth month, being separated as I have done these many years? The village of Bethel is personified as one person. And the language suggests that those citizens of Bethel were actually weary of the fasting, wanting to get rid of it. So exactly what fast would they be asking about? Well, the fast of the fifth month marked the tragic destruction of the temple on the 17th day. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 25. Other events were included under the greater. The ninth day of the fourth month is recorded as the date when the city wall was breached. The fast of the seventh month commemorated the murder of Gedaliah. And on the tenth day of, of the month marked the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's siege of the city. Special days that had become hollowed by the observance over the 60 years of exile. Remember how Jerusalem had been besieged and overtaken. And Zechariah's response to their question, beginning in verse 5, shows that what follows wasn't a direct answer to the delegation. In fact, no direct answer is recorded for even when the subject gets brought back up again, which we'll look at next Sunday in chapter 8, the message is to the house of Judah. There's no doubt, however, that it was the arrival of this delegation that raised the question. And the words of Zechariah recorded here give his spiritual teaching on the subject. And I think they're appropriate for all time. Because it's their motive that was in question. So let's look at verses 4 to 7. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words of the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? You see, when Zechariah is told to speak to all of the people of the land, it's about Jews living in and around Jerusalem and, Jude, and Judah that are men. And Zechariah also addressed the priests who, though they taught the law and pronounced decisions on ritual matters, they were dependent on the prophet for the Lord in these situations. No ready-made answers given. For Zechariah, he believed in group involvement as an educational uh, method. 
What had been their motive in fasting? This question is skillfully worded. And it repeats the key words. Was their fast for the Lord? The Lord alone. Now think about that. As Christians, we are supposed to be fasting. I hope you understand that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't say, if you fast. He said, when you fast. But what was the emphasis that he was making? He was saying, when you fast, don't do it in a way so that everybody knows about it. Don't dishevel your body so that people will say, oh, what's wrong? You look so bad. Oh, I'm fasting. No. He said, do it in a way that they don't even realize that you're fasting. The second question that Zechariah raises regarded their eating and drinking. And it implies that just as they normally ate and drank to satisfy their own needs, so self-interest prompted their fasting. It amounted to no more than self-pity. Now, a similar situation and accusation comes up in Isaiah chapter 58, by the way. And there it's followed by teaching that fasting should result in a renewed concern for and generosity toward those who are needy. When we go without food, we shouldn't just be going without food or water or whatever so that we can say, oh, I'm going without this. I, uh, to be honest, I, I get a little bit tired of hearing some people's stories about what they're giving up as a sacrifice during Lent. You know, don't tell me about it. Talk to God about it. It's not for show. Zechariah assumed that his hearers had a knowledge of the ethical teaching of the earlier prophets. If only Judah had listened before it was too late. But the cities and the countryside, instead of being in desolation, instead of there being empty ruined buildings which were evident, there'd have been life. People enjoying prosperity. And he gives kind of a geographical picture. The south designates that area south of the line from Gaza through Beersheba down to the Dead Sea and over to Kadesh Barnea, the southern apex. The lowlands were the foothills between the hills of Judah and the coast. The higher slopes produced the oil and the sycamore trees while the valleys provided a high yield of grain given farmers to, to till the soil. The third geographical division, by the way, the mountains, they were uncultivated in peace or in war. And therefore, they're not even mentioned by Zechariah. What he's making abundantly clear is that the country was desperate for people to rebuild the cities and restore the farms. And the contrast that he gives and makes between verse 7 and verse 14, between the inhabited land and the desolate land, accounted for by their moral insensitivity 
the moral insensitivity of the previous generations which had called down on them God's chastisement that raised the question of their spiritual responsiveness now let me ask you this question is it possible that what we are facing in the United States of America today is because of our failures to be the people that God calls us to be. Read the newspapers. I don't because it's depressing. The garbage. I don't watch TV. I don't go to movies. I, I, I don't go to any of them. My wife and daughter will say, well, this is a good one, Dad. This would be okay. No, that's okay. i got better things I can do with my time. We are living in an age where it is blasphemy to even begin to try to call ourselves a Christian nation. We are a post-Christian nation at best. His question to them was how they measured up to the standards that had been set by the prophets. And the free quotations which follow in verses 8 to the end of the chapter sum up the prophetic teaching. I'm not going to take the time this morning to read those verses to you. But the harsh reality was that they had hardened their hearts and they had closed their ears. Four commands, four precepts are singled out by the prophet to sum up the standards which had been meant to characterize their faith and their social life. The first positive command, render true judgments. And it sums up the importance which had always been attached to justice in the community since the time of Moses. Listen to me. Every member of the community in his social relationships, not just the judges alone, everyone had this responsibility toward others. The New Testament teaching, when it says, do not judge, that is not an absolute. You have to finish reading. You have to read the four verses in front and the four verses after. Because we are called to discern. It's judged not by a standard that you're not willing to live under yourself. And so when we make those judgments, when we make those discernments, are we willing to allow the three fingers that are pointing back at us to speak to us louder than the one we're using to point at other people? And are we allowing God to be the standard? That's what the thumb's all about when we point. You know, you've heard People run in their mouths. So-and-so did that. So-and-so did that. Did you see this? Did you see that? 
Hey, you just want to grab them and say, well, let me tell you about your life over the last few days. My grandfather was wise. I didn't realize how wise he was. He said, if you don't have anything good to say, keep your mouth shut. And that includes whispering. Don't think that people don't understand when you're whispering little private messages. Don't think that they don't know that you're talking about them probably. Render true judgments. True justice is involved with concern for the individual, especially the downtrodden righteous person. And generosity and humility are called for. And the second positive command, show kindness, that fills out the first because it's closely related. It's that Hebrew word, and I like to say it because it helps me clear my throat. Hesed. I love Hebrew. There's a lot of gutturals that just help you keep your throat clear when you say a lot of Hesed. An attitude of love. An attitude of loyalty that was expected to mark certain human relationships. Those within the family, especially marriage. Those between friends. Those between allies. You see, Hesed was the expected response to kindness. And where a covenant had been made, Hesed between the parties was binding. Hence, the use of the word in connection with the divine covenants. Now, I think it's highly probable that Zechariah had in mind Micah chapter 6 verse 8 with its plea. What is it that God requires of us? Everybody here should have Micah 6.8 memorized. What is it that God requires of us? But to do justly and to love kindness, that's the word hesed, and to walk humbly with God. Man, if we would just do those things. To do justly, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. You see, the generosity and the warmth that characterize true friendship, those are to permeate all relationships. And the exploitation of weakness that he speaks about in verse 10 obviously is out of keeping with justice, kindness, and mercy. And this fact is frequently driven home by the prophets and by the New Testament writers. The widow and the fatherless, the orphan. What was it James said about pure religion? It's taking care of the widows and the orphans. You see, the widow and the fatherless have lost their breadwinner and their defender. They were in a weak position financially and socially and were therefore liable to be defrauded and grossly wronged by the people of that day, by the unscrupulous. The sojourner, the traveler, the temporary resident was at a disadvantage simply because they were different. Don't tell me we don't go there. Don't tell me that when we see that person who physically looks different than us, we don't already start making our judgments, because I know we do. 
That's one of the things, to be honest with you, that shocked me in the five years that I've lived here. I was used, I was used to hearing prejudice when I lived in the South. I didn't think I would hear as much prejudice as I hear on a regular basis living this far north. The poor had no bargaining power. They were at the mercy of the rich. And human cliques and clans and the love of gain were to give place among God's people to generosity, friendliness, and practical help. This was justice in their sight. The fourth command of Zechariah's summary is negative in form. It forbids the very thought of wronging others. It was these moral standards which should occupy those who were fasting because the fall of Judah had been caused by a breakdown of these very standards. But it hadn't. And so what happened? The 70 years of punishment, the 70 years of God's withdrawal, got multiplied by 7. And so instead of 70 years, it would be 490 years before they would hear again from a prophet named John the Baptist. Their predecessors had refused to give such teaching even a hearing. Though the word hearken that he uses means more than just to hear. It means to take the word so seriously that we are willing to subject them to the tests of history and experience. In this way, a man learns that they're words of truth and wisdom. Why didn't we learn the lessons of the 60s? And I'm talking both sides of the issue. Why are we faced again with serious issues regarding racial prejudice? We didn't learn from history on either side, black nor white, Caucasian or Hispanic, or any other labels you want to throw in there. Instead, the people of that day turned a stubborn shoulder, Zechariah says, like an animal that stiffened every muscle in an effort to refuse the yoke. The word came by hearing, so what they do? Zechariah says they plugged their ears. Literally, they, they made them heavy. But the word of the prophets was meant to penetrate all the way to the heart. You see, the problem was that nothing, nothing could penetrate their adamant natures and behaviors. And so, having summarized God's requirements 
and Israel's refusal to obey, divine wrath is what followed. And the theme needed no elaboration because it's outworking in terms of the exile in the year 587 and in all the suffering that had followed for 70 years. It had been written in large, very obvious letters before them for all of the nations to see. The population was scattered. Blown to the four winds, Zechariah says, as if by a typhoon. And that left the pleasant land, the land of promise, desolate. The nations which they had not known, primarily, pri primarily Babylon and Egypt, but also including the lands of the wider dispersion outside the covenant, those that were dedicated to a way of life born to Israel, that's what they had to experience. Meanwhile, the pleasant land, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, promised as a part of God's covenant gift, intended to be abundantly fruitful, that land was devastated and empty. And God's apparent withdrawal of the love gifts of His covenant was the hardest part of the punishment for them. By the way, there's no mention of the days of fasting in this first sermon of Zechariah. You see, he's gone to the heart of the problem. It was easy to spend days fasting to mourn their losses but harder to face up to God's continuing demands. Were they more prepared than their fathers to work out in everyday life the spirit of God's law? You see, the purpose of days of fasting was to give them renewed incentive to, to do so through re renewed experience of confession, forgiveness, and future hope. And are we any different. I've had people come to me and say, you really think a person has to go to church to be a Christian? And you know what I tell them most of the time? If that's your heartfelt question, don't worry about it because you're on the wrong side anyway. You're on the wrong side anyway. If you don't want to be in church every Sunday to worship with fellow believers, if you're not wanting to experience the encouragement that others have, if you're not wanting to be around the Lord's table to be reminded of the sacrifice of love that was given on our behalf, if you're not wanting to hear the Word of God, you're on the wrong side anyway. Amen. See, here's my question. Is it possible that we've gotten caught up, caught up in the ritualism? Going to church on Sunday, giving my offering, singing, praying, even partaking of the communion without stopping to think what it's all about. I have to be perfectly honest with you. I don't know any other way to be. It gets me in trouble sometimes, but that's okay. 
There are few things that bother me anymore than when I have been given the bread and I have been given the cup and I am pausing to remember what my Lord and Savior has done for me and to hear mumbling and questions and talking going on somewhere else in the auditorium. This is a sacred time for me. I had a church one time ask me if I would come every Sunday to be their, their minister. And, and it was not an independent Christian church, the Church of Christ. It was a, mem- a church that was a part of the Wesleyan community. And I told him, I said, you know, I would love to come and worship with you. But I would have a serious problem. And they said, what was that? And I said, I love and cherish my time of communion every Sunday. That's the center of my worship experience. And one of the ladies said, if that's all it is, I'll make communion and we'll have communion every Sunday. And they did. And for over six months, I drove down to Fowler to the Wesleyan church there And I led the service. And if you hadn't looked at the sign outside before you came in, you wouldn't have known that you weren't in an independent Christian church, Church of Christ. Because we were singing the same songs we sing out of these hymn books. We were meeting around the table every Sunday for communion. And I was preaching the same Word of God that I preach here. I wasn't concerned about what their theological position might be or ours. I was preaching the Word. Is it possible... That we've gotten so caught up with going through the motions that we think, oh, I went to church, I'm okay. Isn't that why people look at the church and say, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites? Yeah, they go to church on Sunday, but you ought to see them from Monday to Saturday. You know, that's, i got to be honest with you again. That's why I've never encouraged the church to have stickers, bumper stickers that had the name of the church on them. Because to be honest, I'd be afraid of what parking lot they might show up in. What is our reality? Are we truly living as disciples? Or are we more likely to be just viewed as parts of a religious machine? See, here's my challenge for today that I believe is central to. It's the very heart of this passage of Zechariah. With Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday only weeks ahead. Those Sundays when the Christers show up. You know who I'm talking about. People who claim to be Christians that only show up for Easter. Palm Sunday, Easter. Christers. With those two weeks coming up, with holy weeks that we're facing, with Lent that we're experiencing, are we living like true believers, people who truly believe that the sacrifice of the cross is the shape that our lives should be taking? So here's my challenge. It's a song that we sang as we began our worship service this morning. 
My challenge is that we pray for the Lord to soften our hearts and to open our eyes and to unplug our ears. This morning, as I was trying to get my mind in proper focus, I heard a man say, and it struck me very deeply to the heart, I heard a man say, if you look at the mirror and you don't see one of the worst sinners that you know, you better look again. You better look again. Because very possibly, you're just deceiving yourself. And the only time we can grow is when we realize the reality of where we are at and soften our hearts, open our eyes, and unplug our ears to hear the Word of God. Let's pray. Father God, help us to hear this message of Zechariah this morning. Help us to realize that some of the calamity some of the desperation, some of the horrible things going on in our nation are because of our own sinfulness and our own failures. Forgive us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.